From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. We can build a city that is big enough to keep all of us safe, to house all of us, to support all of us. That is our dream of Denver. Mike Johnston, he'll be sworn in as mayor in July. The former state senator and educator won Tuesday's runoff. So what changes will Denverites notice first? We'll speak live this morning. Then, when it comes to the nuggets, you gotta have hope, says CPR's resident superfan Vic Vela. He's been speaking with other folks who are crazy about the team, even when losses drove them crazy. Well, we're so excited. We've been coming to games for years and years, and watching Nikola Jokic is just amazing. And the official start of summer is in two weeks. We'll take you to mountains where it may never arrive. I remember my first gift to public radio. After making that first gift, listening felt better. I knew that I was in some way making it possible. I don't remember specifically what they said. I just I just remember them using the words member supported. And I didn't know that public radio was funded by members. If you want to support, pay it forward, and, and provide this service to others, I invite you to make your first gift. It's really easy to do at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Michael will pass the baton to Mike. Mike Johnston has won the runoff to succeed Michael Hancock as Denver's mayor. Johnston, former educator and state senator, beat Kelly Bruff by roughly 10 points. And Johnston is with us live. Mayor-elect, welcome to the program. (laughs) Thanks, Ryan. Thanks so much for having me. In the daily lives of Denverites, what will be the first noticeable change with you as mayor, besides maybe your name on the letterhead? (laughs) Yeah, probably not just the voice at the airport, we hope. Um, (laughs) No, I think the first and most important one is going to be a really uh, direct and urgent uh, approach to supporting people that are unhoused on the streets. And you'll see people that are getting up out of encampments and off of street corners and being able to move into safe and dignified housing through the micro communities we're going to build and support. So that will be job one. Um, We're going to work hard to get more officers on the street and first responders out on the street to make sure the city feels safe in all of our neighborhoods. Um, And then we're going to work to build permanent, build a lot more affordable and attainable housing. That will take a little bit of time uh, to get those up and running. But I think what you'll hopefully see immediately in our first 100 days is a real direct and uh, high impact change to how we take on homelessness. All right. Let me unpack just a few of those details. So your approach to helping those who are experiencing homelessness is not to centralize them, as so many have been, in one spot in downtown Denver, but to have, uh, I think you use the word dignified micro communities uh, throughout the city. Uh, Have you identified those spots? Are the neighbors on board? How quickly do you think that we might see those out? Yeah, uh, you laid out exactly the right steps. We have identified, I think we've done a map of all the public land. The city's identified more than 2000 parcels of land that the city owns around the city and County. So what we'll do is narrow those down. What we think are the right set of spaces that have the best potential uh, opportunity. And then we will go and talk to neighbors and engage them and say, here's what we think are the possible available sites. Uh, We haven't, that'll be the first important step to make sure we get community involvement, but then we'll look to cite those and and, uh, get people moved as quickly as possible. But yeah, our first step will be to pick those sites uh, to, 
let neighborhoods give input among the sites that are possible and have them decide which ones they think are the best ones and then get the tiny homes up and built and get them sited and get people uh, moved to better suitable housing with real wraparound services. Okay. And then on the question of first responders, could you give us a percentage perhaps of how many new hires would be trained as mental health first responders versus ones who might be armed and, you know, who might see handcuffs as their first tool? Yeah. And so, you know, our focus has been to put 200 more first responders on the streets. Uh, that number of non-officers is somewhere around 25%. We think there's about 150 need for more officers and then around 50 of those that would be either social workers, mental health supporters, or paramedics, EMTs. And so uh, it's not an exact number, but I think roughly it's about 25% of that new supply would be uh, more mental health first responders than officers. Uh, Perhaps your answers have already addressed this, but what do you think will be the biggest break from the Hancock administration, which has been in power for 12 years? Um, I do think it is the biggest one is going to be uh, just a real laser focus on um, both getting people who are unhoused access to services. And really, that means getting back our sidewalks and our public parks and where folks are having to live now because they have no place else to go. And I think it is going to be a revival of those neighborhoods uh, where people feel safe again to walk through downtown and walk through Curtis Park and City Park and a lot of the central downtown neighborhoods that are carrying a lot of this weight. And as you said, be able to uh, redistribute those services around the city. So it's not a deep concentration of all that need in one neighborhood. I think that will be what we hope to make the biggest difference on these first hundred days. First hundred days. I was going to ask you what the timeline was. So if these things are not achieved in your first term, it sounds like you will not have succeeded. Well, I mean, I always believe in setting uh, incredibly ambitious goals and then doing everything we can to, to achieve them. And you, we know we always make mistakes along the way. I'll always be honest about where we're falling short, but you just you never give up. So it's not as if I don't think there's a, a game clock on this one where the issue is over at one year or two years or four years. But what we should have is systems built where the total number of people that fall into homelessness each month equals the total number who come out of homelessness each month. And so it's not to say there won't be people who fall on hard times. We know that will always happen. But what we should have is a system that catches them, connects them to the services, and tries to get them back on their feet. And that would be the vision for us. Denver mayor-elect Mike Johnston, you previously ran for governor and U.S. Senate. Is winning this race any sort of political consolation prize? Uh, No, not at all. For me, I loved uh, the work I've done outside of politics for the last three or four years. I was the CEO of the foundation here and spent time day in and day out working on these hardest issues, homelessness, affordability, public safety. um, And I love that job. I felt called back into this work because I thought this was the one place where you can make the biggest impact on the city's most significant challenges. And I love the city and want to have it be a place that still feels vibrant and affordable and safe. And I saw a real path for that to get done with the right leader and the right team. I'm grateful that I feel like the city has picked what I hope is the right leader. Now we got to build the right team to make sure we can actually lead this team of 11,000 employees and a $4 billion budget to deliver those results for families. But I am really honored and really inspired by what we can get done. You have a team to build, you say. Do you think Kelly Bruff might have a place in it? You know, she ran HR for the city for a time. She was chief of staff to a former mayor. Would that invitation come from your administration? 
Yeah, you know, I haven't made any decisions on any of the roles in the administration. I've said that uh, early. I didn't make any commitments or promises to anyone, including people on our own team. And so uh, we will start the process today to begin to build the transition, engage community members in what we think will be the most inclusive and largest transition effort that hopefully any mayor has ever run to make sure everyone's voice is heard. And that will include them helping us vet and look at candidates for each of the roles we have to fill. And so we'll look for uh, the best candidates that we can find anywhere in the city or the country who want to transform Denver. And that'll be our criteria. Would you reach out to Kelly Bruff or would she have to submit an application? Uh, you know, I haven't gotten into any, I think actually we haven't gotten any conversations with direct candidates, but I think we would assume that we're going to source candidates from everywhere and they can all apply. But um, anyone that's interested would be the ones that would be uh, coming to us. I want to talk about property values, Mike Johnston, and specifically property taxes for a minute. In Denver, your soon-to-be constituents are looking at a median increase in assessed value of about 33% between 2020 and 2022. Uh, even higher elsewhere in the state. The legislature is trying to ease the pain with a ballot issue in November. It would lower property tax rates and reduce refunds under the Tabor Amendment. That is proving controversial among some. Uh, how do, where do you come down on that ballot measure? Um, you know, I haven't read the entire measure yet, but I do believe that this is going to be an important step. I do think we need to ease the tax burden on Coloradans. And I do know that we have a lot of people living on fixed incomes who've owned homes for a long time and they saw that property tax bill and have no idea how they're going to pay it. So um, I, I will anticipate being supportive of that measure and pushing to make sure we can help balance the tax burden and reduce it um, so that people can both afford to live in Colorado and we can still fund our schools and hospitals and fire districts that we know we need to do as well. Now, there may be another measure on the ballot because critics of the legislature's plan propose a straight up 3% limit on property tax increases in any given year. Uh, You say that you haven't read the legislature's referred measure, but is that other approach better or worse? Uh, uh, You know, I think that what I believe that the governor and the coalition, it's a quite broad coalition that came together for this measure, including business groups and teachers unions and a large cross-section of public service providers. Um, I think what they were after was something that would both give some flexibility um, to reduce that rate and also not lock us into a certain system that was going to be hard to manage in years where you have big fluctuations of increases or decreases. That was what was so constrictive about the the Gallagher Amendment. And so um, and so I think I tend to believe more flexibility is probably the easier strategy. So I, I think the flat ones are probably tougher. But I, I think that there's been a broad coalition behind the statewide property tax measure, and I think it's the right first step. All right, folks, that's the next voice of the DIA train, also, <laughs> also known as Mayor-elect Mike Johnston. Thank you for being with us, sir. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me. Have a great morning. Mike Johnston will be Denver's next mayor. He's sworn in in July. Still to come, CPR's Vic Vela. He doesn't so much have Nuggets fever as a long, low-grade love. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. In the new episode of My Story So Far, Pride on the Western Slope. One of the only spaces where I could explore my queerness openly. Um, I describe it as like a very dusty breakfast club. (laughs) My Story So Far, everywhere you get your podcasts. You gotta believe. Tonight, the Denver Nuggets enter Game 3 of the NBA Championships, tied 1-1. Fans had been hoping for a sweep of the Miami Heat. And if you don't necessarily believe, we'll chat with a man who does. CPR's own superfan, Vic Vela. 
He's also been hearing from fellow fans. Hi, Vic. Hey, Ryan. You know, by the way, in a nod to your chat with Mike Johnston just now, yeah. um, I'm totally someone who would run for mayor just to be the voice of the DIA train. <laughs> I would totally do that. Well, Don't maybe, put it past me. Maybe you should be the voice of the Nuggets. Uh, th- <laughs> this is the team's first time in the championships in their 47 years. You wrote an essay for Denverite about your love for the team, revealing mm-hmm. that you dressed up for Halloween when you were seven as then-coach Doug Moe. Um, Let me read something else you wrote. Even if you're not much of a sports fan, this Nuggets team is for anyone who's ever lost over and over again. The lovable losers among us who keep putting one foot in front of the other. They're for anyone who's ever been kicked while they're down. Uh, Mm. Reflect on that for us. Yeah, man. Yeah, You watch any sports movie, right? And the ones that are really good that get your heart all fluffy are the ones about underdogs, right? The underdogs who no one would think could win anything. The bad news bears, right? There's Hoosiers where, you know, these high school kids from a small little tiny town in Indiana shock the world by winning the state championship. And then there's Major League, the baseball movie, right? Where (laughs) Cleveland is just the worst in the league, but they go on a huge run to win the pennant. Like people love those stories about getting up after getting knocked down and the Denver Nuggets, if you're looking for one of those teams, they're right here. Uh, You know, this, they've never won a title. We know that by now. And if you grew up in Denver, you know that between 1990 and 2002, Ryan, they had 11 losing seasons. And, you know, when they did have some success, it always ended in heartbreak, right? Mm -hmm. The Lakers would always just destroy them in the playoffs, but Mm -hmm. Now this organization that's been down for so many years under head coach now, uh, Michael Malone, they're playing in the NBA finals. You got to love that. Really is the day of Michael's on this show today. Um, (laughs) The Nuggets are looking to bounce back after Sunday's game two loss. What's your hot take, Vic? That was a really deflating loss. You know, I was inside that arena and you could just feel like fans are living and dying on every shot. Right. And It was just a really quiet kind of bummer, you know, uh, and especially since Sunday's game was the highest rated game involving the Nuggets ever, uh, you know, of all time. So this city is really hot for the Nuggets right now and losing at home Sunday really hurt. And now it's a battle. It's a series, man, you know, against Miami. Uh, Denver is the more talented team, but they were not the better team Sunday. And after the game, Michael Malone really called out his players. We had guys out there that were just, whether feeling sorry for themselves for not making shots or thinking they can just turn it on or off. Um, this is not the preseason. This is not the regular season. It's not round. This is the NBA Finals. And that to me is really, really perplexing, disappointing. Yeah, Denver did not look like themselves Sunday. They gave up a lot of open threes to the Heat and they were at times really frustrated by the officiating, and they just didn't look focused. Uh, And now the series is tied. And the Nuggets no longer have home court advantage. Does that give you a bit of anxiety? I mean, I know you've been talking with other fans about this as well. I've experienced a lot of losing Nugget seasons in my 46 years of living, Ryan, so Uh anything gives me anxiety. But (laughs) perspective is also needed, right? It's one game. They lost one game in a best-of-seven-game series. 
And we've seen what the Nuggets are capable of doing. They just swept the mighty Lakers and and one of the best players of all time, if not the best, uh, LeBron James, right? So I think there's a good chance that they bounce back tonight. And here's the thing. Fans are just really excited and they're still very much optimistic, especially since a guy named Nikola Jokic, you may have heard of him, uh, is on our team. I talked to Karen Kinney. She's a longtime Nuggets fan about what it's like seeing Jokic play in person. Well, we're so excited. We've been coming to games for years and years, and watching Nikola Jokic is just amazing. It's just so fun to watch the way he checks out the his teammates, throws the passes. He's not about scoring for himself, but about the team. Fans, you've spoken with also feel strongly that the Nuggets have been disrespected by the national press. That was especially true in the division finals against the Lakers, I gather. Yeah, we got a cue Aretha Franklin right now, right? You know, a little <laughs> respect for the Nuggets. Where has it been? Uh, and that's been a big thing, especially on social media, Nuggets fans versus the world. And it goes back to that little guy thing I talked about before, right? The the guy who never won before. And now the Nuggets are finally winning. But a lot of fans think that, you know, a lot of the people who talk about sports on television are from the East or West Coast, right? And And a lot of them think that Colorado is like from an old Western movie or something. So, you know, getting the coastal media to say something nice about the Nuggets is like pulling teeth at times. And that's something that George and Vanessa Maldonado of Colorado Springs certainly think. Like, when do you see Shaq and Barkley and all these guys come to a Nuggets game? You know, it's like, so finally, you know. Maybe ESPN will start talking about Nuggets now. <laughs> How are the Lakers going to beat the Nuggets? How are they going to catch back up? <laughs> <laughs> of course, Vanessa was talking about that Lakers series, which the Nuggets swept, but many of the coverage angles were about those L.A. Lakers. Okay, we have about a minute. I want to leave with one of your favorite moments in Nugget history. I mean, like oh a, a, apart, apart from these NBA finals, right? Oh, my gosh. 1994, man, the playoffs. The Nuggets beat the mighty Seattle Supersonics, and they became the first eight seed ever to beat a one seed in the NBA playoffs. It was huge. And I was hanging out with a lot of my high school buddies, and we were just go- jumping up and down, going nuts. And there's that iconic shot of Dikembe Mutombo laying on his back, gripping a basketball that's as big as his smile. And nowadays, Brian, uh, Ryan, there's a new generation of Nuggets fans that are having a similar moment. There's hope in Denver. The Nuggets are really, really good. And we can win the whole enchilada. How cool is that? There's give them hope, which is what Vic Vela has done. Thanks so much, Vic. Thank you. CPR host here, of course, and our resident Nuggets super fan. Read his essay at denverite.com. And it's not just Denverites hoping for wins in South Beach. CPR's Tom Hess checked in with a big-time fan in southwestern Colorado, where there is plenty of passion for basketball. Leland Collins Sr. has been glued to the television throughout Denver's postseason run. Deflected by Adebayo, stolen by Murray. One man to beat, Murray goes up, throws it down, and the foul! Oh, nasty stuff from Jamal Murray with some contact and a chance for a three-point play. He watches from his home in Toyok, sometimes with his family, sometimes not. Kind of depends on how the game is going. <laughs> yeah, when either my family usually sits up here, we usually watch it together, but 
once it starts getting pretty close and, and, and I started getting yelling up here, my, you know, everybody starts going to their own spots. And, and then sometimes I end up in the living room yelling around by myself because I'm like, gosh, start it. Lowry connects on a three. All of a sudden, it's a 10-point game. Collins grew up playing basketball and rooting for Denver, making this season particularly special. Shoot, boy, I've been Nuggets fans for like forever, I, I could say. Um, well, you know, I'm, I'm 46, so um, say like 20, 20 plus years, 30 years. When, when Carmelo was the Nuggets, uh, I took my kids to the to his uh, basketball camps and stuff. And I, I live way down here by the Four Corners, you know, Toyok and you know, with the travel, but, you know, I love the Nuggets. And Collins likes to share that love of the Nuggets. In April, he presented a custom Denver Nuggets necklace to Governor Polis on Ute Nations Day. It was made by a friend, Adele Jacket, with intricate beadwork making up the team logo. Two gold pickaxes crossed over a basketball. That necklace is now on display in the governor's office. I have a lot of friends here on the reservation that makes up, and, and it was gifted as a birthday gift to me. And then that day... Uh, I had wore it because that day was Ute Day. And uh, on that same day when I had seen him up there and I had given it to him. Collins has not only been a basketball player, but he's coached at several levels as well. Ask him about Jamal Murray's footwork and he lights up the way a true student of the game would. He loves to watch Nikola Jokic pass and see players moving without the ball to create easy shots. And, like anyone who has ever taught the game of basketball, he has a hard time turning off his coach brain. I sit there and I'm saying, come on, guys, go for the two. Why are you guys going for the three? You know, if you went for the two, you'd be catching up. You know, just stuff like that. I sit here and I say that, you know, and I'm like, post them up. Come on, take them, take them. You got a shot. You got a shot. You got a shot. You know, yelling here like that, you know, just almost like coaching from the side. Shot clock is four. Jokic has to put it up. Falling away, puts it up. Dang! Collins says most of his friends are Lakers fans, so while he's still focused on a championship this year, he at least has bragging rights following the Nuggets' sweep of Los Angeles to win the Western Conference. In Grand Junction, I'm Tom Hess, CPR News. Denver has taken in more than 10,000 migrants who've arrived in the city over the last six months. Most then boarded buses and went to other places, but some have stayed trying to start a life in Colorado. Denverite's Kevin Beatty reports that Denver Public Schools has felt their growing presence. DPS staffers and families gather in a cafeteria to celebrate the end of the school year with some dancing and music. The event is put on by the district's multilingual education department, which helps all newly arrived students work on their English and navigate our education system. We've provided interpretation for over 20 different languages, Spanish, Arabic, Amharic, Nepali, the program works with students from all over the world, like Saiba Amiri from Afghanistan. She just celebrated her first year in Denver. It was hard at first, but I know I have a future here, she says, thanks both to the education available and the dedicated liaison who helped her and her three siblings land on their feet when they arrived. Afghan students like Amiri filled the multilingual education program two years ago. Then, last December, migrants who were mostly from Venezuela showed up with little notice. Sari Portillo helped coordinate the district's response. We've been meeting with families in shelters, in hotels. So when we had this large influx, we had at some points like 15, 20 students at a time that we had to register. The district served almost 1,500 newcomers last year, double what they saw before the pandemic. 
But it's not just about getting kids in the door. The department prepped teachers to deal with intense trauma that some students brought with them after they crossed deserts and jungles to get here. We, that gave us opportunities to make sure that families felt welcome, that they felt safe, that they felt secure. Immigration is not something I can control, and I don't know what will happen in the next couple years, right? But they're here, and if they're here, they're our future. So how are we preparing these kids and our families to better our future in our country? Portillo and her colleagues hope that, in time, this year's new arrivals will soon be like Amiri, comfortable in class and starting to take agency over their own futures. Kevin Beatty, Denverite. You will know it is time to turn the page when you hear the chimes ring like this. We have chosen the next book for Turn the Page with Colorado Matters. You read with us and then take part in the conversation with the author. Our new pick is Soil, the story of a black mother's garden by Camille T. Dungy. She is a distinguished professor at Colorado State University in Fort Collins, and she is indeed a parent and a plant mom. There are so many similarities between raising a child and raising plants. One of them that strikes me that I write about in Soil directly is the fact that plants come in these tiny little packages. They just, they're seeds or seedlings that can fit in the palm of your hand. And then I have to remember when I put them in the soil that they could grow to be six feet tall and and as wide. And I have to give them the space and the support that they need to grow into their full possibilities. And of course, my own daughter, I could once hold in my hand and now she's almost taller than I am. And I have to always be able to give her the support and the space that she needs to truly grow the way she needs to. This is a book about gardens and family and justice. Pick up a copy of Soil by Camille T. Dungy. Then join us in the perfect place for the interview, Denver Botanic Gardens, the evening of Thursday, June 29th. Tickets are free, but limited. To get yours, head over to CPR.org slash turn the page. When we come back, a Coloradan wonders about the Never Summer Mountains. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Support for Colorado Public Radio comes in all shapes and sizes. You might give monthly as an Evergreen member or contribute during fund drives. Maybe you donated your car or gave a gift of stock. For all the ways you support CPR, thank you so much. Your generosity is deeply appreciated. Thank you for bringing trustworthy news and timeless music to listeners across Colorado. Explore all the ways to give at CPR.org. Click on Support CPR. The names of Colorado's mountains have come under scrutiny. A naming commission is considering the origins and the impact those names can have. But we got a question through Colorado Wonders about a mountain range in the western reaches of Rocky Mountain National Park. The Never Summer Mountains rise to nearly 13,000 feet. Here's CPR's Eden Lane. Carrie Pettis has lived in Colorado for more than 50 years, and she loves it. I consider it my home state, even though I wasn't born here. So. Pettis has a thing for place names, and she wonders about several of Colorado's intriguing place names. Well, I'll give you a couple of examples of others that I wonder about. Uh, I wonder about Cripple Creek, 
which is west of Colorado Springs. And I wonder about, like, I wonder, you know, who broke their leg there or whatever happened. <laughs> and I wonder about the Cache-Laputa River out of Fort Collins. Who was hiding gunpowder and why were they hiding gunpowder? One place in particular prompted her to submit a question to us. One of my favorite place names in Colorado is the Never Summer Range. How did that name originate and what mountains does it include? All I know is it's on the western side part of the state. It's such an evocative name, so poetic. I just um, wondered how it came about. 17 named peaks in north-central Colorado make up the Never Summer Mountains mountain range. Pettis has the right idea for how the place gets the name. The Never Summer Mountains do get their name from the extreme amounts of snow and rain that frequently fall there. But the upside? The region's varied ecosystem is a direct result of this climate. Dave Lively is a professional tour guide and speaker presenting the history of the west side of Rocky Mountain National Park, which includes parts of the Never Summer Mountain Range. He says the descriptive name has its roots with the Arapaho people originally living in the area. In 1914, just before Rocky Mountain National Park was established, we invited, and when I say we, the Colorado Mountain Club, a hiking club that still exists today, invited uh, two elders and their interpreter from the Arapaho tribe at the Wind River Indian Reservation to come down and go on a two-week pack trip out of Estes Park. They were joined by a man by the name of Oliver Toll, who was a great note taker, and a gentleman by the name of Shep Houston, who was a rancher in the Estes Park. Lively says the Arapaho spent many years in and out of the area, much like another tribe did, the Ute. They had names for all the things they saw, the places, the wildlife, the beauty of nature that surrounded them. Basically, they asked the Arapaho leaders through their interpreter, what did you see? What were you thinking? What was happening when you were here in the past? Because the Arapaho spent a number of years in and out of the Kawanichi Valley, just as the Ute did. But on this two-week pack trip, they pointed out different sites and different locations. And one of those sites they called the Kawanichi, or the Coyote, or Coyote if you prefer that word, stream. And above that, they pointed to the mountains that they called Never No Summer. And so the group adopted the name. To further illustrate how apt the name Never Summer is, Lively shared that the area did in fact have snow last August, and you can find pockets of snow year-round. What would I need if I wanted to go visit Never Summer Mountains? Well, some of the mountains can be accessed with a simple day hike. There are a number of trailheads uh, on the west side of Rocky Mountain National Park as you drive on U.S. Highway 34 through the Kawanichi Valley. For instance, the uh, Bowen and Baker Trailhead is a very, very popular trail, and you can start there and within uh, a matter of literally four to five hours one way, uh, you will be uh, on the side of Mount Baker. Uh, with a gorgeous view uh, down the Kawanichi and looking south all the way down toward uh, Mount Baker, which is over uh, 65 miles away at that point. The National Park Service says the Never Summer Mountains have the only volcanic rock in Rocky Mountain National Park, deposited there millions of years ago. Today, it's home to 20 miles of hiking trails, and tourism officials say the mountains have some of the oldest trees in Colorado, some up to 600 years old. I'm Eden Lane, CPR News.
Send us your questions about life in our state of wonders at cpr.org slash Colorado Wonders. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from listener-supported CPR News and KRCC.